I'm on. Thanks very much. I'm truly honored to be here. Why? The saddest texts I've read lately are Jacqueline Miller's ruminations on Judith Butler and the transgender movement, a document of his provincial spirit and growing irrelevance. This text in itself shows why the renovation of the Lacanian thought and practice advocated by Tupinamba is an urgency today. Not only does his book spoil the ideological game that predominated in Lacanian circles for decades, Tupinamba compels us to confront the philosophical implications of psychoanalysis. I already wrote elsewhere about all this. I just want to, in a very personal manner, to give you an empirical proof that I'm fascinated by Tupinamba's book and I admire it. You know why? When I read the book, there was no kindness in me. Oh, I admire you, what a book. It was envy and hatred. Why wasn't it me who wrote such a beautiful book? That's for me the ultimate honest proof that, well, things changed. Let me begin now with the difficult relationship between the analytic clinic and the universal theory that emerges out of it. Theory of signifier, of four discourses, and so on. Yes, Freudian theory is rooted in clinical experience, but the task of analytic theory is not just to relativize itself in this way. It is also to account for the very possibility of something like clinical experience in terms of universal human predicament. How is our symbolic space structure so that a couple of analysants and analysts can operate the way it does, contravening the standard form of intersubjective exchanges? For Lacan, the diet analyst-analysant is not just an artificial exception, but an exception to or a distortion of normal communication which brings out a basic feature of the social link. Discourse obfuscated in so-called normal intersubjectivity. For Freud, as well as for Marx, the exception is the key to normality. So how should we historicize the psychoanalytic experience? Tupinamba actually refers here to the Kantian distinction between negative judgments, judgments that negate a predicate like he is not dead, and infinite judgments, judgments that assert a non-predicate like he is undead. Along the same lines, Tupinamba proposes the distinction between the negation of positive universals and the affirmation of negative universals. While fully endorsing this line of thought, I would just give it a slightly different reading. Maybe, maybe it's not different at all. Negation of positive universals reached its peak in postmodern historicist relativism. Every positive universality is deconstructed. It is demonstrated how this universality is biased, how it secretly privileges and eternalizes 
a content which is a contingent historical variable. But we should always bear in mind that ideology is not only the eternalization of a specific historical situation. It is also the reduction of something that is constitutive of the entire field to a specific contingent property. Ideology is not only the elevation of capitalism into the most appropriate and rational economic order. Ideology is also the dismissal of crisis and antagonisms that characterize capitalism into a deviation due to, due to particular unfortunate circumstances. And the accompanying idea that another capitalism is possible, which would avoid crisis and antagonisms. Along these lines, Frederick Jameson rejected the once fashionable notion of alternate modernities, the idea that our Western liberal capitalist modernity is just one of the paths to modernization and that other paths are possible, which could avoid the deadlocks and antagonisms of our modernity. Once we realize that modernity is ultimately a code, a code name for capitalism, it is easy to see that such historicist relativization of our modernity is sustained by the ideological dream of a capitalism which would avoid its constitutive antagonisms. Was fascism not an exemplary case of alternate modernity? In a strictly homologous way, the reduction of the impasses of sexuality to a specific historic constellation, say, of Western patriarchy, opens up the space for the utopia of a full sexuality without its impasses and perversions, which, as Freud demonstrated, inhabit its very notion. The thought of this ideological deadlock is to supplement the negation of positive universals with the assertion of negative universals, with an impossibility constitutive of the entire domain. Yes, all positive identities are relative, unstable. There are so many attempts to deal with the same underlying antagonism. And what triggers change is the ultimate failure of every attempt to resolve this antagonism. One of Lacan's negative universals is, of course, le pas de rapport sexuel. There is no sexual relationship, which means that it is not enough to point out the imminent instability and historical character of the traditional gender binary. One should also add that every determinate form of gender relationship, no matter how open and flexible it is, will fail to overcome the impossibility constitutive of human sexuality. Here I find, listen, Gabriel, and sharpen your knife to strike back, here I find a little bit problematic to Pinamba's critique of what he calls structural dialectics, his attempt to historicize the real. According to Pinamba, the logic of the signifier the core of structural dialectics ontologizes into a universal frame 
the differential structure caught into a self-referential movement of circulating around its constitutive impossibility. And within this frame, the real appears as the impossible of this structure and as such as um, a historical limit. The elusive excess that defines the structure itself. However, according to Tupinamba, this ontologization of the logic of signifier is based on ignoring the fact that it is rooted in the artificially produced analytic situation, a situation engendered by the enclosure of the clinical space, analyst analyzon. The real is the impossible excluded from and by this situation and such a historical variable which can be analyzed as part of another wider reality. I think we can now understand in what sense for Tupinamba, what is ultimately to blame for Lacan's limitations are his philosophical commitments, as they are discernible in his elevation of the logic of the signifier into an ontological a priori. The logic of the signifier, the ultimate frame of our access to reality, provides de facto a kind of transcendental frame to our access to reality. What eludes it cannot be conceptualized in Lacan as another reality, but can only appear as a limit phenomenon, an elusive virtual point of reference ultimately defined only by our failure to reach it. So the real is not just impossible for us to grasp. It is impossible in itself. It fully coincides with its own impossibility. And Tupinamba rather dismissively refers to this redoubling of impossibility, to Lacan's claim that we only touch the real through the failure of our attempts to grasp it as a proof by impotence. Quote from Tupinamba, the impotence of the model counts as the potency of the proof. End of quote. It is here that I, again, slightly, maybe, I'm sure of nothing, disagree with Tupinamba. I think that he gets all too easy, easily rid of the subversive power of the proof by impotence which indicates the pivotal point at which Lacan's motive of the overlapping of two legs, subject's leg and the leg in the other, echoes the basic, in my reading, the basic Hegelian motive of the problem deadlock as its own solution. In my past work, I was obsessively returning to this motive, enumerating examples Say, the well-known Adorno's analysis of the antagonistic character of our notion of society. In the split between the two notions of society, Anglo-Saxon individualistic, nominalistic notion and Durkheimian, Emil Durkheim, organicist notion of society as a totality which pre-exists individuals, this split seems irreducible. We seem to be dealing with a Kantian antinomy which cannot be resolved via a higher synthesis. 
so that society appears as an inaccessible thing in itself. However, I think that to resolve this deadlock, we should merely take note of how this antinomy, which seems to preclude our access to the thing, already is the thing itself. The fundamental feature of today's society is the irreconcilable antagonism between totality and the individual. What this means is that ultimately, the status of the real, for me, is purely paralactic and as such non-substantial. The real has no substantial density in itself. It is just a gap between two points of perspective, perceptible only in the shift from the one to the other. The paralactic real is that which accounts for the very multiplicity of appearances. It is not the hardcore which persists as the same, but the hard bone of contention which pulverizes the sameness into a multitude of appearances. Now I come to the first crucial point. For Tupinamba, this refusal to think the real in itself, this reduction of the real to a mark or a trace of its own impossibility is, insofar as the unconscious is one of the names of the real, also, quote from Tupinamba, in the last instance, the reason why for Lacan, the unconscious must be conceived as an ethical instance and not as a psychoanalytic concept, end of quote. But I see this as a wrong alternative. Ethical is here a psychoanalytic concept. It designates the dimension of ought in Freud's formula, Voeswar Zolig Werden, where it was, I shall become. And as such, it points towards Lacan's refusal to ontologize the unconscious into a substance or substantial base of subject's psychic life. Here we encounter, I think so, a proof by impotence at its most trenchant. The inaccessibility of the unconscious is not just a sign of our epistemological limitation, of our inability to reach another side where the unconscious fully exists. The unconscious is in itself not fully existing. It dwells, dwells in the domain of neither being nor not being. Now we reach the next central motive of Tupinamba's critique of Lacan, his critical reading of Lacan's formulas of situation. To somehow simplify the line of argumentation, Tupinamba qualifies phallicism, the masculine side of the formulas of situation, as the logic of enclosure, totalization of a finite set, which generates what it excludes as a non-existing virtual access that escapes language. And although Lacan deploys the feminine side of the formulas as escaping this logic of enclosure, he ultimately still conceives the feminine side, the infinite jouissance feminine, the way it appears from the masculine side as an excess with no positive reality. 
But since Lacan's structural dialectics, whose core is the logic of the signifier, is ultimately, for Tupinamba, an illegitimate universalization of the way speech functions in psychoanalysis, one should not conceive feminine enjoyment as structurally inaccessible, but only as currently outside of our reach. So for Tupinamba, the epistemological implication of the phallic logic is clear. Since this logic can only conceive radical otherness external to the symbolic space as an immanent excess of this space itself, and since this immanent excess is part of our libidinal psychic reality, it has to generalize the properties of the psychic real over those of indifferent otherness. A quote from Pinamba, what is not the signifier exists only insofar as it remains marked within the signifying chain as a stumbling block that is then displaced to a phantasmatic exception with no actual existence. End of quote. My naive question, does this hold? It is true that some formulations in Lacan's seminar encore are somewhat ambiguous. He does characterize feminine enjoyment as an excess outside language. But the main thrust of his argumentation is clear. There is no need for a function other than phi, phallic function, to conceptualize femininity as it is in itself and not just as something in excess of the phallic function. To see this, one should only read Lacan closely and literally. Femininity is defined, that's the paradox on which I insist, almost everybody disagrees here with me. Femininity is defined precisely by its full immersion into the phallic function. There is no exception to it, which is why, paradoxically, feminine position is more, not less, immersed into the field of phallicism. In my reading of the formulas of sexuation, I'm thus tempted to reach the exactly opposite conclusion. Is the externalization of what is not closed under phallicism its externalization into an unfathomable otherness, not part of the masculine formulas, or to put it in more conventional terms. Is the very idea of a substantial woman that eludes the masculine symbolic grasp not part and parcel of masculine ideology? Tupinamba, of course, sees that, far from being limited to the relation between sexes, Lacan's formulas of sexuation are extraordinarily productive as a means to clarify other relations. For example, the basic feature of authentic historicity, as opposed to historicism, is that it is feminine in the sense of Lacan's formulas of sexuation. It abolishes this exception. It relativizes its own position and thus historicizes its own notion of historicity. It is in this sense that, for me, Hegel is a radical historicist. For him, every historical epoch, with every historical epoch, 
the universal notion of history also changes. Such an approach allows for no exception to historicity and is for this reason non-all. There is no single universal notion of historicity since this notion is itself caught into the process of historical change. Historicism is not radical enough because it does not take into account how each historical break is not simply a break within history, but changes the very notion of history. This is why I think, frankly, we shouldn't dismiss as ridiculous Fukuyama's talk about the end of history in 1990. After the, the victory of global capitalism, the sense of history changed radically. So where does Tupinamba stand here? His central claim is that what eludes phallic domain, quote from him again, does not need to point to something that is structurally inaccessible. It could also mean that it is currently outside of our reach, end of quote. So when, in the very last paragraph of his book, of the manuscript, I read originally the manuscript, so I'm not sure if it's in the printed book, uh, Tupinamba pleads for, quote, a new compossibility between transgender and feminist critiques on the one side and psychoanalysis on the other, end of quote, as a way to articulate positively, not just as a limit case, what is not close, closed under fallicism, I'm tempted to propose a counterclaim. In the same way that Tupinamba tries to separate Lacanian ideology from the radical core of Lacan's teaching, our task today is to separate the transgender and feminist ideology from the radical core of this movement. Only in this way can the movement be redeemed. And only Lacanian psychoanalysis combined with Marxism can do this job. This brings me back to the distinction between the negation of positive universals and the assertion of negative universals. In its ferocious negation of positive universals, emphasizing how the gender binary is a historical variable, not a transcendental a priori of human sexuality, the predominant form of transgender and feminist ideology forgets to assert a negative universal, the antagonism that characterizes human sexuality as such. So it ends up proposing an ideological vision of sexuality which, freed from patriarchal binary constraints, becomes a joyful experience or expression of our true selves, a practice of non-binary plasticity where a subject permanently experiments with itself and reconstructs itself playing with different identities from hetero to gay, from bisexual to asexual. But for me today, the true tyranny is the tyranny of this permanent rediscovery of new identities. All the conservative fundamentalist campaigns against contemporary hedonism, sorry, uh, and egotism is for me a fake, a reactive phenomenon which is already contaminated, mediated by what it opposes. For example, 
is not the ultimate proof here, Donald Trump himself, a ruthless hedonist posing as a partisan of conservative values. If there ever was a postmodern historicist president, politician, it's Trump. Along these lines, in a column that I want to quote briefly from The Guardian newspaper, Suzanne Moore praised Judith Butler's reduction of sex to gender. Quote, Butler writes, if the immutable character of sex is contested, this construct called sex is as culturally constructed as gender. Indeed, perhaps it was already gender with the consequence that the distinction between sex and gender turns out to be no distinction at all. How immensely freeing that it is, end of quote. For Moore, the notion of sex designates an immutable, stable binary identity, masculine or feminine. It is a contingent social construct, but this contingency is obfuscated by a reference to biology. Sex is part of our natural identity or justified by ideology. Gender, gender identity is, in contrast, a contingent social construct, and the experience of this contingency is immensely freeing. It opens up the space for freely shifting between different identities, a permanent shifting which runs smoothly, involving no antagonisms and tensions. So the idea is that antagonism and tension emerge when this open space of gender games is subordinated to the tyranny of sex, to the patriarchal order of binary opposites. Patriarchal order is about power, about the exercise of power and domination, and power is what sustained, sustains the passage from gender to sex. In short, gender identities move in the liberal space of the freedom of choice, a space which is inherently safe. Nobody controls me there. Nobody tries to impose on me an identity which is not mine, while sex or sexuality as such involves abuse, violence, domination, and is as such the space of antagonisms. Well, I, of course, don't agree with this entire line of thought. Why not? The Lacanian replay, reply, sorry, is that what multiple gender identities exclude is not sexual difference as a stable hierarchical order, but the antagonism, unease, impossibility that defines this difference, sexual difference. Traditional heterosexual binary order admits the potential aggressiveness and tension that pertains to sexual difference, and it tries to contain it through the ideological notion of the harmonious relationship between the two sexes. Sexual antagonism is here repressed, but it remains as a potential threat. In the space of multiple gender identities, what is repressed returns with a vengeance. All sexual perversions, all violations of heterosexual normativity, they are not only permitted, but even solicited. However, the paradox is that repression gets much stronger in this return of the repressed. What is much more repressed than before? 
in traditional heterosexuality is the immanent antagonism of sexuality. Now we come to the crux of the problem. That is the impossibility that pertains to sexuality, not historical and as such variable. Why can't we imagine and practice a different sexuality no longer branded by a constitutive antagonism? A sexual relationship which is not structurally inaccessible, but just currently outside of our reach. Incidentally, it is sad to see how even Alain Badiou falls into this trap. His solution, <coughs> sorry, his solution for our sexual predicament is the creation of a new symbolic space for men and women beyond traditional patriarchal hierarchy, but also beyond capitalist nihilism of the outlaw real. Such a new symbolic space can only arise by means of a properly philosophical gesture of the creation of new basic signifiers, of a new symbolization through which both sexes are reinvented. A new space where women are also scientists, politicians, artists, where men also deal with reproduction and so on. From the Lacanian perspective, however, the first thing to do is not to search for the traces of some new symbolization of sexual difference, but to interrogate what is in sexuality here and now more than its patriarchal traditional symbolization. Without this interrogation, the dream of a new symbolic space of sexuality is just that, an empty dream, an ideological mirage that enables us to avoid the antagonism constitutive of human sexuality. But again, is this antagonism impossibility an ahistorical a priori? Uh, Lacan's answer seems easy to me here. It is, of course, not eternal, but it is constitutive of human sexuality. We can, of course, imagine an asexual reproduction or a life with totally different modalities of pleasure. But in this case, we are simply no longer dealing with sexuality. It is exactly like with alternate modernities. One thing is to pass from one to another form of modernity, say, from liberal democracy to fascism or authoritarian populism, which are just different ways to deal with the underlying antagonism that defines capitalism. Another thing is to break out of the very field of modernity, inclusive of its constitutive antagonism. What do I want to say here? To simplify it to the utmost. Yes, of course, there is so-called external reality, which is out there independently of us. Who knows what is out there in the cosmos? The only thing we can be sure is that there is an infinite numbers of things we don't yet know. But this infinity of the external world is something profoundly indifferent, in itself banal, flat, and even stupid. The fact that we don't know it means just that, that we don't know it. There is no mystery here, no proper dialectics of appearance, no structural illusion in the proper dialectical sense. 
the impossibility of sexual relationship is, I think, something radically different. The mystery of sexuality, our structural need to supplement the lack of a fixed formula of sexual relationship with phantasmatic supplements is constitutive of sexuality. It is what transforms animal making into human eroticism. There is no external reality to be discovered behind the specter of fantasies. The only mystery is here, the mystery of the forum itself. In exactly the same way, Marx points out that the mystery of the commodity forum is the mystery of this forum itself, the rise of the form of mystery. Here we can see how the difference between the two reals, the real of the impossible thing and the indifferent external reality is fundamental for Lacan. The source of metaphysical mystification resides precisely in the confusion between the two, in the identification of the libidinal thing from the inner space with the ultimate enigma of external reality. One could even say in a Kantian mode that this identification is a necessary transcendental illusion. External universe is not really a mystery. It is just whatever it is. It only appears a mystery when it gets caught in the deadlocks of our libidinal economy. Or to evoke again the anecdote often quoted by Lacan about Zeuxis and Parasius, the two painters from ancient Greece who compete to determine who can paint a more convincing illusion. You know the story. First, Zeuxis uh, produced such a realist picture of grapes that birds tried to eat them. Then Parasius won by painting on the wall of his room a curtain so that Zeus asked him, okay, now please pull, pull, pull aside the veil and show me what you painted. In Zeuxis' painting, the illusion was so convincing that the image was taken for the real thing. In Parasius' painting, the illusion resides in the very notion that what the viewer saw in front of him was just a veil covering up the hidden truth. This is how mystery functions in a symbolic space. There is no mystery behind the veil. The only mystery to be explained is how to convincingly paint a veil that creates the illusion of a content hidden behind it. And incidentally, it's, I think, the same with social antagonisms. For example, if we were to ask today, how is the American political space, North American, structured, uh, we would, if we were to ask this question, we would get a totally different answer from of Trump or from liberal center left. Trump would presented, presented himself as the voice of the hardworking people against the corrupted, non-patriotic enemies of the people, and a liberal leftist would have presented himself as the last bulwark of human rights and freedoms against fascist demagoguery. So the real, that's what I was, the real is not the actual reality, social structure. The real is the antagonism which 
generates this, uh, which generates this opposite vision. And I like this parallel of sexual difference between uh, with uh, social class antagonism because uh, uh, because uh, I think we have the same attempt to deny binary logic. Also with some sociologists, they claim, oh, you are old fashioned. There are not only two classes. There are many strata, many classes and so on and so on. Of course there are, but the antagonism all this is one. Antagonism, precisely because it, it is antagonism, cannot be directly translated into a symbolic binary. Antagonism necessarily appears as at least three, or in classical Marxist term, we have the ruling class, the oppressed, but then we also necessarily have middle classes, uh, uh, those who are uh, uh, excluded from social body as such, and so on, and so on. Why is this important today? Because I think that in struggle, in the feminist struggle, as well as in struggle for uh, social emancipation, uh, the temptation is the identity politics. For example, uh, now, I don't know if you know it, but I notice now that in Germany, there is an interesting new trend called classism. The idea is that working class should be recognized in its specific cultural identity. Workers are taught to celebrate their identity, their small rituals, and so on. They have an identity of their own. I think this is the worst bourgeois ideology that you can imagine. It's basically even a fascist solution. It is, we give you your identity. But the, the struggle for uh, the class struggle is not this. Class struggle is an attempt to live, to cancel myself as class and, and, and the opposite class. So to conclude, exactly 40 minutes, what I, what I claim is that, that's my basic argument where I would love to get uh, Gabriel's answer. What I claim is that when Lacan speaks about this real as the constitutive, uh, cons uh, uh, constitutive antagonism, which has no real existence, but is just an imminent limit and so on, this is, of course, historical in the sense that it can disappear. But the entire field disappears without it. What is wrong with identity politics is that you want the same elements, workers, capitalists, state apparatus, but just in their more full identity, as fascists always uh, repeated, uh, 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 workers deserve full re uh, recognition, their honor, their dignity, and so on, and so on. So I think, again, that uh, it's crucial here to see the radicality of the change demanded when we want to move out, when, when we want to, or when we want to abolish a certain structural impossibility. We lose also the identities which generate this spectral X, the real as impossible. This, for me, is a totally different sphere 
this is fear of symbolic antagonisms and so on, which has nothing to do with the problem of so-called external, external reality. The real for Lacan is not the way things really are. I would even have said, and I did in some of my books, as the real for Lacan is precisely the force which, which the real is the force, the pressure which makes us to violate, uh, distort the way things really are. When you see things in the wrong way, the real is that which forces you into this uh, falsification. I can explain more books, but now I'm an obsessional neurotic. I think it's exactly 40 minutes and half. Thanks very much. And Gabriel, please, I hope you sharpened your knife. This is not a rhetorical point in the sense that uh, I know the truth now. I graciously allow you to agree with me or not. It's a debate. Please.